0: Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O oh Lord. Thank you, Father, for a new day, a day to worship you. Your love for us is an incredible gift, infinitely costly in Christ, yet constantly renewed and offered freely to all who will perceive it. Help us understand its value. You're restoring your creation and us along with it. Empower us to participate in your work. Renew us through your spirit and open our minds and hearts to your eternal truth that we might be able to lay ourselves aside and live for you. Give us thankful hearts and strong voices as we declare our praise for you today. We pray for covenant and for all of your church universal. Prepare us without spot or blemish. And as we wait for your day, cause us to serve you faithfully. We pray for Louise Slingloff as she continues to recover after her stay in the hospital. We pray for all those in need in our congregation, those with emotional or physical health issues, those suffering from grief, loneliness, fear, depression, or any of the things that plague us as humans. Send your spirit to minister to them in their need. Cause us to be aware of their needs and to be faithful, to step in to care for them and to pray for them. We pray for our graduating seniors, surround them with your loving kindness and go with them as they step further into life. Remind them constantly that he who is in them is greater than the one who is in the world. We pray for Reform University Fellowship and its ministries, bless and protect RUF, its pastors, interns, and students as they carry the message of the gospel to campuses throughout the U.S. and around the world. Give them the resources and energy needed to carry out their mission. And be with Stuart as he brings today's message to us. Send your spirit to speak through him and open our hearts to hear your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.
1: All right. Good morning. No, that's that's bad. Good morning. There we go. Everything by grace, but the good morning greeting, you know, is performance based. We gotta have a loud one. You know, we gotta I believe that the, the sermons are participatory, so I'm gonna I'm gonna roam around. It's not that I just have to go to the bathroom, but I also want to roam around and engage you. So this is what we need to do with college students, but I believe we all need it, right? And so I'm very, very grateful for each of you uh for seeking God. I'm grateful for your support of RUF at the University of Alabama. Like they've said. Uh, My wife is Mary Cannon right here. We're expecting our first child in July, so that's the most exciting thing in our life. But we've been a long time ministry partners of Covenant and uh, very, very grateful to see what God continues to do through your support. And it's an honor and privilege to minister to your students when they come to the University of Alabama. Uh, As you might know, Alabama is very, very large and it gets students from all over the world and all over the country. Right now, I believe that it's about 60% of the school is out of state. And so it is a very diverse group of people from all over the state, all over the country, and all over the world. And you're supporting a ministry that is sending uh, ordained pastors to the campus and trained staff and interns to go and proclaim the gospel of of Jesus. And so uh, I want to just make one recognition. Uh, Ellie Shuford is our female staff. You just raise your hand. Uh, she just finished her first year. I don't know. Maybe Covenant will want to support her financially. That's a plug. I don't know. I didn't see her get announced, so we can work that out, uh, figure that out. Ellie, was that good? Is that was that helpful? Was that awkward? All right. Uh, it's my fault, not hers. All right. So uh, we're going to continue our series in First Peter chapter two. And so, if you'll look with me, uh, it is printed in your bulletins, and I'll read from it. And then I learned from the first, um, the first. Uh, uh, service that you're not to stand up. So remain seated. You already know what to do. I don't. And you're to say something with me at the end. So you're going to know what to do. Just look at your bulletin. All right, here we go. First Peter chapter two, verses four through 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of the field grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. God, we believe that this is true, that you are real, and that you have actually redeemed us in Christ. God, there are those among us who have not turned to you, and you've been a stumbling block. And we pray, God, that you would lead them to repentance, that they might come to know you, for you've told us in this passage that there are two realities for us. We either live in Christ or apart from you. And so, God, I pray that by your grace, you might remind us that you speak to us because you love us, no matter what it is that you say. Illuminate our hearts and our minds to understand what you have for us in Peter, what it means for us in Birmingham today what it means for us as we go off to college, what it means to us as we parent, what it means to us at work, what it means to us at school and in our lives. God, would you speak powerfully to us through your Holy Spirit, and may we believe that you are a living stone and that you are among us. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, so we're continuing in the series on First Peter that I believe this is the fourth week or so. And any time that we engage in something from the Bible, we need to first and foremost be reminded that it has a context, an immediate context, okay? And so the Bible is not written to us, but it is written for us. So here's what I mean. This particular letter was written by a particular person to a particular people at a particular time, and spoiler alert, none of us are those people, right? Right? So 1 Peter is written by the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter who had denied Jesus, who was told that by Jesus he was going to be the rock of the church, the one who'd been restored by Jesus, he had gone off to go and proclaim the gospel, and he was writing to a specific audience in this letter of people in modern day northern Turkey. And these people were suffering. They were struggling. And back in the day, what you would think if you were suffering and struggling It was a result of your lack of faith in whatever God that you trusted in. So they were prone to believe in this world in which they lived that their suffering was the result of their unbelief. And Peter is writing and he is saying, actually, your suffering is participation in the righteousness of Jesus. Your suffering not only isn't wrong, it's right, right? It is what you need to do to take on the cross, to follow Jesus in a world that is broken, in a world full of suffering. And so he is reminding them that they're being purified. And it brings us to our particular chapter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Quite simply, our outline this morning is just three things. It's he, we, and so what. So I want you to say it with me. He, we, and so what. So he, we, so what? I'm trying to make this as simple as possible because I believe that God wants us to know him. And as you look at the beginning of this passage in verse four, it says, as you come to him, what this means immediately, it's a clue that you can actually know God. You can know God. You can have direct access. You can have a relationship with him. And the you as a y'all, we'll get to that in a second. But you can come to him. I spent my entire first 19 years here on earth rejecting this idea. It seemed arrogant to me that God would be available to individuals like myself. Why would he care about me? Why would direct access be something what was needed? And it just didn't seem to be something that sat right with me. But the passage this morning is telling us that as we come to him, a living stone, So the first metaphor we get, a living stone about God, is that God is not dead, but he's alive. He's still living, breathing. God himself is a person. He's not geographically limited to one place. He is God himself. And if you want to know what he's like, just look at Jesus. There is no God behind Jesus that's not exactly like Jesus, right? And so this passage is talking about Jesus. As you come to Jesus, a living stone, And keep in mind, for a suffering people who were surrounded by the lies and by the cultural idols that they said that Jesus was not really God or that Jesus had been crucified and he was gone, Peter is reminding them, no, no, your God is not dead. He is actually alive. He's living. A living stone. It says even more than that, that he was rejected by men. I think we all like to believe that we're rational people. And that if we just had enough data or if we just knew enough that we'd make the right decision. But if you've gotten very far in the Bible, you realize that that's not really the story of humanity. And if you look honestly at your life, that's not really the story of your life. You see, God himself, who architected the whole world, who made everything, who built it all, he comes into the world. And what's the result? Is it approval? Is it reception? No, it's rejection. You see, Jesus himself suffered rejection in his life here on earth. We are not people who just need more data. We're not people who just, if we saw him face-to-face, we would act differently. No, our sin blinds us to the truth. We are just as sinful as those who crucified Jesus. We cannot have the grace of the cross without the guilt of the cross. And so we need to be reminded as we confessed earlier that we rejected this living stone, and we still do. And we need to come to him every single day. He's rejected by men, but get this about him. In the sight of God, Jesus is chosen and precious. Chosen and precious. I don't know many males who describe another male as precious, right? But that's what God the Father thinks about his son, Jesus. Precious, chosen, The one in which he pours out all of his delight, the one in which he loves, the one in which he loves to love, he loves to care for Jesus and God the Father have such an intimate relationship full of love that they're inviting us into, but we see that in God's sight, Jesus was chosen and precious. So the first application for us this morning is, can you live and go throughout the day without having the approval of man? Is that even a possibility in your imagination? Because Peter is using his theological imagination with the Old Testament that he has already to say, listen, it is a possibility that you could go through your life rejected by men, but actually chosen and precious in the sight of God. Do you believe that this is true? This is the reality of the one who made all things, the man who created all men, the man who created everything that exists and it goes on and it says, as Daniel wrote, uh, uh, spoke for us earlier, quoting Isaiah 28, verse 6, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone. Again, what's the cornerstone like? He's chosen and precious. And the cornerstone is a piece in architecture that you would build on which all the angles would be judged off of it. It was the foundation. So the builder of all things becomes the foundation of the building. The builder enters in, he takes on, and what it says happens is that this cornerstone either becomes those who build their life on top of them or a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. I'm going to keep reading. It says this in verse 7, The honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. You see, you cannot love God if you do not love what God has revealed through his word. Plain and simple. The argument plays out in John where he says, no one loves God who you cannot see if you do not love your brother who you do see. You see, we evidence our love for God by our obedience to God and his commandments here on earth. And I think there was a really great quote, if you will, turn to page one in your bulletin. This was something that I was reading before the first service that I thought really explains this really well. This is from D.A. Carson. It's the second quote. And this is what he says about this passage. He says, Peter here insists that everyone is affected by the coming of Christ, positively or negatively, depending on whether they too are living stones or alternatively, simply reject him or stumble over him. God's plan includes a division of people around his son, so this cornerstone rejected by so many. And the most important thing both for this life and for the life to come is to be living stones along with him in the temple Of which he is the cornerstone. He's the most consequential human being who's ever lived. There's never been a human being who has ever lived who has been so consequential. Your relationship to Jesus determines eternal life and eternal death, not only to come, but right here, right now. Everything is about him. There's Jesus and there's everybody else. And so, are you reconciled to Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Have you come to him, this living stone who is rejected by man, have you come honestly with your fears, with your sins, with your guilt to come to him and to receive him and to receive his grace? You see, this cornerstone is responsible for every single stone that is to be built on it or every single one who stumbles over him. Everyone stands account before this person, and this passage lays that bare from Peter. Peter. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And so the he in this passage is Jesus. If you're picking up on what Peter's doing here, you'll realize that he's playing on these themes from the Old Testament of the prophet, the priest, and the king, right? The prophet who declares the word of God, the priest who intercedes before God a man, and the king who rules and reigns. And it's showing us through all different images in this passage how Jesus is that true priest. He is that great prophet, and he is the king who has already come. And because that's true of him, it brings us to our second point, which is we. What is true of him becomes true of us. What is true of Jesus becomes true of us. And what's true of us, our sin, becomes true of what Jesus suffers in his life. That's called union with Christ. This we is something that is shocking in a world where we're so hyper individualistic. We're so concerned about me. We're putting so much pressure on ourselves to construct the right identity, to have the right approval, to be involved in the right things. I see this all the time in my life and with students at the University of Alabama. It's so hard for us to live in the context of relationships with other people because relationships are messy relationships are challenging. And so when this passage says that you are living stones being built up together, it's like, no, 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 no. Jesus, just let me be my own stone off to the side, right? I don't wanna have to become this house that has to rely upon other people. A lot of you are that way because of different things in life. You don't like to rely upon other people. You just wanna do your own thing. That's not godly. God has called you to become you in the context of other people. You cannot become yourself by yourself. And this passage is adamant, it doesn't even have a lick of possibility of saying that this is about us alone as little isolated individuals and people. No, it's about us together. Again, the yous in this passage are y'alls. It's collective. He's not telling us to work this out by ourselves, but he is calling us to live in the mess in the context of relationships. That's the only way Jesus works. It's the only way he has, and it's the only way that he's going to continue to work. To tell a story about the mess of relationships, uh, about 10 years ago, I decided out of the blue to call my mom. It's a nice thing to do, right, to call your mom, especially when you're about 25 years old. So I I called her, and I was feeling pretty good about myself because, you know, she's going to feel great about it, and what could possibly go wrong? So I call her, and we start talking, have a pretty good conversation, and we get to the end of the call, and she says, So is there any reason in particular that you called? And I was like, yes, this is awesome. This is when I can genuinely say, no, there's actually not. I was just calling to talk. Every parent's dream, right? Well, at least on 364 days of the year. But on the day of your birthday, if you're a mother, the only thing you really want to hear from your son is happy birthday. (laughs) And so I confidently said, no, no, nothing else. She hung up. (laughs) Three hours later, I realized it's her birthday. You see, relationships are messy. We need redemption because our intentions, mine were good. Our intentions are not enough. It's the impact. Relationships with other people require a lot, saying I'm sorry, and learning how you come across with other people and knowing that this living stones, this spiritual house that God is building, is a body of people. He's redeeming us. He's working through our relationships. And there's so much work that he needs to do in order to redeem us and to allow us to participate in that. And so the we that it says that we are, we're God's spiritual house. That's amazing. It means that God is not fundamentally about building buildings. He's about rebuilding people. And he doesn't start over. He gets into the ruins. He goes into the mess of our life, to the sin of our life. He comes and takes on flesh, comes to us for us and for our salvation, as we said in the Nicene Creed. God's movement towards us is always initiated by Him. Always initiated by Him. And He's continuing to create. He's continuing to initiate. We're His house. We are the ones in which He's building. We're the holy priesthood. Direct access with God. Women, men, children, old people. Doesn't matter what your background is or what your denomination is. If you're in Christ, all who have died before us, all who are alive now in Christ, and all who will come to believe in Him after All have the same access with God. The same access with God. Called to be priests. It's a beautiful and incredible reality. And so Peter repeats it in verse 9. He says, Again, you, y'all, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So in that section right there, Peter is saying, We're prophets, we're priests and we're kings as the sons and daughters of God. That right now, our ruling and reigning is with Jesus, even through suffering, following him to the cross, taking up our cross, denying ourselves, and following him, whether as a mother, whether as a child, whether as a person at work, whether going off to college, whether in high school, whether older, near the end of your life, whatever it is, you have direct access to God through his word and through his son, Jesus and you can know him, and you are called, it says in this passage, to proclaim. That's the work of a prophet. All of you are prophets, is what this passage is saying. All of you are priests. You don't just have priests who do all the religious services for you. No, you are the priests. You are the prophets. And the church is really the only organization I know that fundamentally exists for those who aren't here yet, right? Right? Do you notice that in this passage? Why are we the royal priesthood, the holy nation, the treasure possession, so that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous marvelous light? What this means is that covenant Presbyterian church, the word covenant, relationship, the promise of God, is to exist for the life of the world. Do you long for the kingdom to go out into Birmingham to participate, to be his hands and his feet, not just to be concerned about the interests of your church and your people, but to proclaim the excellencies through your work, through your parenting, wherever it is that you go. We have too small of a view of God and God is saying, no, actually you are called to participate in this. It's not just information to download. It's a relationship every single day for you to live in. And it is always possible because the living stone is alive. He's alive and he's made you his treasured possession, his most precious possession, And loved just as much as the son that you might proclaim the mercy of how you've become his people and how you've received his mercy. And it brings us real quickly to our last point of the so what, which we've started to talk about a little bit, the reality that we exist for the life of the world. But very quickly, when you start to realize about the problems out there, the scripture reminds us that most of the problems are actually in here. They're inside of us, right? We need a whole lot of redeeming as well. We're not just going out with the message and now we conquer in the name of Jesus in some kind of Christendom way. We're not ushering in God's kingdom. We're just bearing witness to the kingdom that God is doing through our sacrifice and through our suffering with Jesus. And we need so much of Jesus in our own lives if this is to be true for us to proclaim the excellencies of him out into the world. I'll close with a story. This is from Banksy. Uh, You may know him, but he's maybe the world's most famous artist. In November, he made a secret trip to the Ukraine and he created seven new pieces of art. He entered into cities and neighborhoods that had been demolished by the war that's still going on. And in the midst of this, he finds broken and bombed out buildings to use as his canvas. In one particular demonstration, he painted a gymnast practicing a handstand on a pile of rubble. In another, there's a woman in a bathrobe with curlers in her hair and a gas mask on her face holding a fire extinguisher next to a blown-out window. But here's the genius of what he was doing. By entering into the crater of this tragedy and using it as the canvas of his art, he was taking what is seen as worthless, damaged, done, useless, and to make it and turn it into something of incredible value. You see, the work in which Jesus does in our lives is like Banksy was doing. It's out of the rubble. He's taking the rubble of our lives and he's turning it into treasure. His canvas that Banksy used was valueless to others, and yet he saw what it could become. And for us, when we look into the lives of other people, we're not necessarily qualified to be the kind of redeemer that other people need. We all need that perfect redeemer. I was thinking about that with this story. If I was sent into Ukraine, into this area, there's no way that I would be making anything beautiful out of rubble because I'm not a qualified artist, right? I'm not someone who can do these kinds of things. It was not just that anyone could bring beauty out of brokenness. There needed to be someone with incredible and remarkable talent and skill to work in the medium of rubble. This is the power of what Peter is telling us about the gospel of Jesus: is that He does not throw out the mess of our lives, but He works and redeems us through what has been purposely destroyed, what has been willfully ruined, betrayed, abandoned, blown up by our sin, and He works and He turns it into beautiful and precious works of art. You see, you may feel valueless or without worth, but He takes what is wrecked. And he wonderfully restores it. He takes evidence of my rebellion and transforms it to be evidence of our joyful submission. You see, Peter is telling us that there is a divine builder, a divine artist who is making all things new and bringing beauty from the ashes of our wrecked and ruined lives. And you, we collectively are the canvas upon which he displays his love, his power, his ability to redeem and restore even that which seemed to be beyond all hope. And this will come to pass because the cornerstone is faithful and true and living and he will redeem us and make everything new. Let's pray. God, I pray in the hope of your risen son that we might know that we have not just come this morning to gather in a building and say words or spout off doctrine, but we have actually come to dare to believe That you are here and that the most fundamental reality of this world is that you exist, that you are building us, that you are making us, and that because of that, we have hope. So God, in the rubble of our own lives, may you transfer it and make it into something beautiful. May you give us courage to believe that this is true. And may you give us the courage to enter into the lives of other people, knowing that together we are being built up into this spiritual house, this royal priesthood. This is not just an individual promise, but it is a collective promise for your people from all times, all languages, all nations, all places. And God, we thank you that though we were not your people, we've become your people. Though we once did not have mercy, we've received mercy and grace upon grace in your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.